you would please take your Bibles and turn them to Malachi chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 12. It can be found on pages 5 and 6 in the bulletin for you. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And the vine of your feet in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. And as you do, please join me in, in seeking the Lord's help as we approach his word this morning. Father God, we thank you. You have been so generous to us, chiefly and mostly in Jesus Christ, sent for our salvation. And so God, in light of your generosity to us, I pray that we would truly be faithful and cheerful and generous givers. And we would understand the, the weight of a text like this, about how we respond to you with our money, with our time, with our energies. God, would you help us to be faithful, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Cheap. Stingy, thrifty, and frugal. These are words that accurately describe my shopping practice. When it comes to grocery shopping, I am the guy who pulls out the weekly flyer and I build my list based on what's on sale. If it's not on sale, I'm not going to buy it. Or I load my Kroger card with their very fancy uh, digital coupons. Very helpful. I don't have to do anything with them. Just load it automatically. Or I'm the guy at Target who has my phone out and I'm scanning everything that I'm seeking to buy to see if there's a discount or a sale. And then for clothes, I either go, if I'm in the store, I go right to the clearance rack. Or in the case of online shopping, I look for that beautiful red banner marked clearance or sale. Now I do admit that for larger purchases, I'm a little less cheap and frugal. Like if I'm buying a computer or a tool or what have you, I will spend a little bit more and do some research to get the most for my money. But still, I will do my best to buy said product on sale, discounted, or even slightly older model if it will save me a couple bucks. And while this may be a smart way to spend the money of my families for the things we may need, the things we may want, it is not a smart way to give my money to the Lord. There is no creature discount, if you will, that we should be looking for as we respond financially to God's abundant grace and the blessings that he has poured out for us. There is no penny pinching that we should be seeking that would leave us just a little bit more in our wallets or in our savings accounts. As we come here to what is the fifth dispute in the book of Malachi, we find, though, this is exactly what the people of God are doing. In the name of hard times or just a general lack of desire, the people have withheld from God what rightly belongs to him what he is due. It is just one more picture of the corrupt worship practices and the corrupt hearts 
that the people of God are bringing less than what God has clearly commanded in his law. Robbing God was one more thing to add to this growing list of covenant unfaithfulness, covenant infidelity in Israel at this time. Though this time, and for the first time, we do see that the people are invited, they're called to repent, to turn from their sin and to seek the Lord. And such repentance, we will see, it means a change in their failed giving and to therefore reap what God would pour out. So we see in this text here that God demands repentance for our cheap responses to his grace. God demands repentance for our cheap responses to his grace. And in this text, the Lord gives three commands, three imperatives for his people to follow. They're found in verses 7 and verse 10. Three commands, three points. It's like gold for a pastor. Uh, so the, first are, the three are, return to me, bring the whole tithe, and put me to the test. They're there for you, I believe, on page 7 in your bulletin. But we start with that first imperative in verse 7, where the Lord says, return to me. Despite the previous word at the end of verse 5 of judgment that is coming for blatant sin and infidelity, the Lord still comes and invites his people to return, to come back. Repentance is what we call it. It's that picture of turning away from something, sin, and turning to another, God. And in general, the Old Testament paints repentance as a turn or a return to a faithful relationship from, with God from a former state of estrangement, as one scholar writes. And as we've gone through the book of Malachi, we've already seen the estranged relationship between God and his people. Every sermon to this point has highlighted at least one reason for this strained, broken relationship. Israel doubts God's love. The priests are disgraceful. The people are unfaithful. The nation is doubting his justice and his ability to administer it. And in a moment, we're going to see how this list is going to get one more thing added, robbery. And so the question, and in spite of all of this, the sin and this wickedness, we see that the Lord calls for repentance. He says, return to me, come back to me, and I will return to you. And the question that Malachi is anticipating the people asking of why, why would God return to his people, we see the answer in verse 6. It's because God is who God is. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In spite of this rampant wickedness and sinfulness going throughout Israel, the people have hope, and that hope is God has not changed. He is the same God that he was way back in the days of Abraham, in the days of the patriarchs, Moses, David, and so on. And just as he graciously and continually called his people to return to him then, he's continuing to graciously call his people to return to him now. For this is who he promised he would be way back in Moses' day when he said, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God does not change who he is, and therefore he does not change what he says or what he does. He will remain faithful to every one of his promises, and that is to give mercy and forgiveness to those who repent, to those who turn from sin and turn back to him. 
This is Israel's only hope, present, past, and future, that God does not change. Changelessness for us is almost this foreign concept in our day, especially as human beings, because change is a reality of life. Things around us are always changing. People, circumstances, life stage, technology, world powers, you name it. There's an abundance of change going on all around us. And then there's also an abundance of change going on within us. Our bodies are always changing, our emotions, our interests, our health. And we can be tempted in a life where things are constantly changing to think and act as though that applies to God too. That he in some way is constantly changing. But brothers and sisters, we are reminded here that we serve the unchanging God. Or as James says in his book, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no hint that God will change. There's no possibility that God will change. And because he does not change, we can count on his mercy, his grace, and his steadfast love, even when we sin. Because from this unchanging God, Jesus Christ came to secure and accomplish our unchanging and eternal salvation. God is not like, thankfully so, every other human being who loves you today and hates you tomorrow. He is not fickle, he is the same. We can take great comfort in this profound truth of our immutable, unchanging God. But we also see that a running people points to why God makes this plea to return. After he confirms his changelessness, he says, From the days of your father you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Basically, he's saying, God does not change, and you have not changed either. But unlike God, they haven't changed because they're stubborn, they're rebellious, they're stiff-necked. They are unchanged like their fathers were unchanged, constantly sinning and wandering and walking away from the Lord and his law. The people are like my childhood dog. When each day I would come from, from home from school, I'd let her out and I'd go get a snack or change. And we never had one of those invisible fences, and in hindsight we probably should have. But she was always beyond our property line. She was either in the backyard or beyond the backyard barking at the horses in the, the pen out back. One day she was actually on one of their noses barking at him. Not the most intelligent dog. Or she was worse in the street barking at the trucks and the buses who were trying to get their way into our development. Or she was in the neighbor's yards, who had invisible fences, teasing the dogs for having invisible fences. She was committed to turning aside, just as God's people were committed to turning aside. Deuteronomy 9.6, given thousands of years before in Moses' day, was just as true in Malachi's day. Where it says, you are a stubborn people. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. The Lord has been preaching, return to me to an unfaithful people from the very beginning. They regularly needed it, for they were regularly unfaithful. And in his unchanging ways and in his grace, he is preaching the same message for us today. For we still wander, we still turn aside. 
from his law and his statutes. We think that there's joy found outside of them instead of the joy and freedom that's found in following them. But because he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, we can rest assured that forgiveness and mercy are waiting for us when we turn, when we come back to him. Return to me is his invitation to all of us, whether for the very first time by placing our faith in Jesus Christ or for the unnumbered time by turning back from whatever sin it is that is there before us. So may we heed his invitation. Turn from whatever sin we are struggling with by turning to our unchanging and merciful God. Return to him and he will return to you. The second imperative we see given by the Lord is the crux of the argument. Bring the whole tithe. And this command essentially addresses both of the people's questions. How shall we return, which is not really a genuine question that they ask, and how have we robbed you? Bringing the full tithe into the house of the Lord would demonstrate true repentance. It would demonstrate true repentance just as much as any of the other things. Remembering God's love, being faithful to the covenant, honoring God's name would have. And sadly, the people still fail to see this. They're still convinced they have nothing to repent of. They're convinced that there's nothing wrong beyond the hard circumstances they are facing. And most importantly, though, bringing the full tithe, though, highlights the people's particular sin being addressed here in Malachi, where he says, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me. These are very forward and frank words from the Lord. This word rob is not the same word steal that we find in the Ten Commandments. It is rarely used, actually only one other time in Proverbs 22. It means to take forcibly. And that also includes to withhold something from someone that they are rightly due. The people here are guilty of blatantly cheating God from what he is due or taking forcibly what belongs to him by not letting it go. And again, this shouldn't surprise us because we've seen they're already doing this to one another when it talked about withholding the wages from the worker. So it's just adding one more layer of the moral condition in Israel. They've robbed God and they are robbing him. It is something they're doing actively, daily. And again, in his mercy, the Lord tells them how precisely they have robbed him. He says, you've robbed me in your tithes and your contributions, the whole nation of you. This problem is all Israel's problem. It's not isolated to one individual, to one family, or just the priest's. All are guilty of this robbery. If the command then is to bring the full tithe, we see that the people are guilty of bringing anything but that, something less than. They're keeping for themselves what rightfully belonged to the Lord. It's akin to if we were to go out to a restaurant and get a $50 food bill of dropping a 20, writing a thank you note, and walking out the door. There's no interest, no desire or intent to even do right or give what is owed. It's robbery. Hopefully no one here would dream of doing that in, a circum in any situation, even if the service is terrible. And yet this is how the people are treating the Lord. The one who has brought them back from exile into their land. The one who has been nothing but 
abundantly gracious and merciful to them. And the reality it is, it is how we treat God if we give him anything less than what he deserves. Less than his full tithe. Tithe, as many know, means tenth. According to Leviticus 27 and Deuteronomy 22, 12, it includes the seed, the fruit, the grain, the oil, the wine, even the firstborn of the flocks and the herds. It is an encompassing amount. And technically in Israel, there were three tithes. The first is given to the Levites as their allotted inheritance. It was their provision for their service to the Lord in the temple. And then from this, the Levites were also then required to give a tithe to the service of the temple as well. It was essentially a tithe to support the worship and the work of the Lord in the temple. And it came from the first fruits, the best of their produce. Not the bottom, not the middle, the very top. The second tithe is, was collected as for all the feasts that would go on throughout the course of the year. This tithe would be brought in those feast days and all the people would enjoy the bounty of God's goodness together. And then that third tithe we see was given every three years by the people to help provide for the poor, the widow, the fatherless, and the stranger. Those that we saw in verse 5 of chapter 3 are being disregarded by the people. Such tithes would come to the temple and they'd be stored and handed out as things were needed. So the temple would become this storehouse, this place where people could come when they needed food or other needs and find it from the hand of the Lord through his servants. And so for all you math whizzes out there, in any given year, Israel would be commanded to give at least 23% of their earnings to the Lord. If you add all those together in the one tithe, is every three years. The contributions that are mentioned are any of the other things that were either explicitly commanded by God or vowed by the people to bring or were given simply out of the people's generosity. But ultimately, in the tithing system, in the practice, we see it is a declaration in Israel that everything belongs to the Lord. And it's, it's coming and bringing this as a, as a declaration of the people's then thanks and gratitude for his continued and faithful provision for them. The tithe was the commanded and the appropriate response to God's grace. And so you can see then why failure to give it is akin to robbery. Failure to give it fully, failure to give it from the first fruits, any and all withholding of the tithe was robbery. It was theft. And the punishment we see is God says you are cursed with a curse, which is likely referring to what is listed in verse 11, the devourer, destroyed fruits, barren vines. For each of these are listed in Deuteronomy as covenant curses. What they could, the people could expect when they did not live up to God's law. And the people probably had their excuses. We see the land is not producing as it was supposed to. The price of the tithe was pretty high. The best and the needed probably needed to be saved and stored for the people and their families. And so corners started to be cut, pennies started to be pinched, which meant less for the Lord. And sadly, we see the results not abundance or a better financial standing. 
It's curse. It's more of the same struggles that Israel is enduring. And so we, as we approach the tithe under the new covenant, I'll admit there is some debates in both Reformed and Presbyterian circles. And while there is a level of agreement that it's not a total one-to-one correlation, for we don't have a literal storehouse, we don't have feasts that we're gathering to repeatedly, there is proof and an argument from Scripture that the tithe remains an obligation for God's people. We see that actually its origins go back to Genesis 14 and Abraham when he brought the tithe. That was before the law was established, before God's people were established as his nation. And yes, even though the New Testament does not explicitly command to give the tithe, it still operates under a same principle of giving, of giving abundantly, of giving generously, as we read this morning. But then additionally, on top of that, under the new covenant, the blessings that we receive as God's people in Christ far surpass any of the blessings that were received in the Old Covenant. And it is for this reason that the late R.C. Sproul would write on tithing, the starting point of Christian giving is the tithe. Not the end point. It's not the ceiling, as some would argue, but it's the floor. And all this is to say, though, that the principle we see here remains. A failure to tithe is robbing God. And seeing as the statistics, the most recent report from I think two years ago, says that in American churches, only three to five percent of people tithe regularly. Requires a little bit of examination. For the tithe belongs to God. It is our grateful response to his continued generosity and provision. It is the least, the least that we can do to give back to him for all that he has given to us. For through the tithe, we support the work of his church. Through the tithe, we care for the needs of those in our congregation as they arise, as well as those outside in the various ministries that we support. And no, this doesn't mean to only give to the church. We're not called to isolate all giving here, because there are, as we know, plenty of parachurch organizations and other organizations that do good work that we should support. But it does mean that the starting place of our tithe, the starting place of our giving, is the church. It is to join, to foster, to support the work of the church that God is doing here in our midst. And so the application is is give. Give joyfully. Give sacrificially. Give, as we read earlier, with a heart full of love and gratitude for Christ and his church and the work of his kingdom. It's the only thing that we can give to that we know the return investment will be worth it in the end. And for young people, start now. Whether you have a job or you get money from mom, dad, grandma, or grandpa, set some aside. Make it a a priority early to learn the habit of the tithe, to give for what God has given to you. We should be eager to give generously to the one who has given so generously to us in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus we lack nothing. And in light of what Israel is dealing with, the hardships and the struggle, we're challenged also to give when it's hard. To give when we're tempted to hold on to it. 
give when we're tempted to even save for something that we think is better or more worth it. And then we're also challenged, though, to give beyond our wallet. To give of ourselves as living sacrifices by offering our time, our talents, our energies, our gifts here at the church to the service and the ministry going on here. If you go to page 13 and 14 of your bulletin, you'll see there's opportunities for us to give faithfully in those ways. The nursery, Sunday school, other places, give, the, give there as well. But let me also say this as a word of encouragement. This church has been a faithful church when it comes to financial giving. Your past, long before I got here, and your continued giving is a testament to that. You have been a testament to your faithfulness and God's faithfulness to bless the generosity of his people. So praise God for your continued faithful giving. Even in the midst of this pandemic, we've proven faithful. But still, there's always that temptation, though, to hold back, to rob God of what he is rightfully owed. And so may we not look for such, give in to such temptations. May we not look for such excuses, but continue to joyfully, to generously support the mission and the work of God in his church, to remain obedient to his command to give as grateful people. Let us return to God by bringing the full tithe as he instructs us. But the last command that we see is is the challenge from the Lord. We see it in the second half of verse 10, where he tells the people to bring the whole tithe and by doing so to put me to the test. Which sounds a little off because God has clearly said, don't put me to the test elsewhere. But here God is inviting his people to test me in this. See what I do with what you give in your obedience. And he promises blessing should the people listen to his word and return to him and bring the full tithe with them. Now verse 10, many of you are probably familiar with, has been used and abused possibly more than any other verse in scripture. It is the fuel for many of those televangelists we see in their work late at night on the TV. I guess we don't do TV that way anymore, but if you used to flip through the channels, you'd find them. And actually, in a conversation with one of you about Malachi, one of you jokingly asked, so when are we going to get to the American version, alluding to this text? Because the incorrect thought from this text is that if you give to God, you should expect him to give great material and abundant blessing and luxury and a life of ease and comfort. All your problems will be solved. So give, give, give. And so we see these people marketing this message are raking in cash to pay for their luxurious lives, while sadly the givers are left hoping for and waiting for that blessing they've been falsely promised. And this practice is not only just a wrong interpretation, it's wicked and sinful, and sadly, if if you've seen a documentary called The American Gospel, it is the chief export of American Christianity is this idea as if you give, God is going to give and meet all your needs and make your life easy and luxurious and wonderful. But that is not what the Lord is declaring here. It is not give to me so you can get rich or give to me so you can be, have a life that is easy. The challenge that he's placing before the people is a challenge in their obedience. 
He's saying, are you going to trust me that I will provide for you and that my promises are true, or are you going to trust in yourself and your ability to provide for yourself? Because at this point, Israel is trusting only in themselves. They're believing that by withholding, by keeping back some of the tithe, it's going to work out to their benefit. It's going to leave more for the rainy day. It's going to cover when tomorrow doesn't bring as much harvest or the next season harvest is low or altogether absent. They believed holding back would ease their worries and concerns. But put me to the test is God's way of coming and saying, trust in me. He's challenging them and is saying, look at your pantry and my pantry. Whose do you think has more stuff in it? It's not yours. The people's thinking is entirely backwards. It's flipped on its head. They thought by holding back, they'd receive more. They thought by giving, they would, they would lose. And God comes and says, no, it's the opposite. And test me in this. And are we not guilty often of doing the same thing? Too often trusting in our own financial smarts more than in the God who owns all things and gives it freely as he chooses. And no, that doesn't mean that we just abandon all smart budgeting and financing. But it's still under, operating from the first principle of trusting in God, that he is the one ultimately to provide for us. And as we see, the first thing he promises is, is abundance, is blessing. He says, see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. That phrase, window of heaven, it points back to Genesis chapter 7 and 11 when the floods came. Where Moses writes literally that the windows of heaven opened, the rain came down, filled the water, and flooded the earth. God is promising here to once again open the windows of heaven, but this time instead of rain raining down, it would be blessing, provision. It's the opposite picture of what we see in the flood. We, you and I can open our wallets when we give to God and know that he will bless our giving. He stands ready and willing to bless us when we do. But notice, and this is where the televangelists get it wrong, that God emphasizes in that verse, the blessing was until there is no more need. The promise is not riches. The promise is not abundance or luxury or wealth. The promise is the absence of need within the covenant community of God. And we see this principle laid out before us here, and it's applied at the very early stages of the church in Acts chapter 2, where people are coming with their gifts and bringing them to the church, and it says they're meeting the needs as they were met. Those who are hungry are getting food. Those who need clothes are getting clothes. Those who need shelter are getting it through the ministry of the church because they're faithfully and generously giving to the church. The needs of God's people are abundantly met as God's people are faithful to test him by bringing to him his full tithe. And so the Lord invites all of us to accept his challenge, if you will. Will we trust in his abundance or our ability to maintain or secure our own? Will we trust him to provide for us or not? It's really what it comes down to. 
But a second promise we see in verse 11, though, is restoration. For just as covenant disobedience had brought curse, covenant obedience is going to bring blessing. God promises to remove the devourer, bring an end to the destroyed crops and the unfruitful vines. And while that is not Israel's greatest need, it was their most perceived need. Life was hard since returning to the promised land. But they didn't realize that disobedience was only making it harder. And so in faithfulness to his word given to Moses, the unchanging God promises restoration through obedience. Working harder to plant and working harder to protect their crops was not going to fix their problem. Better irrigation or crop rotation was not going to solve it. The only thing that could solve it was by faithful obedience, bringing to God what was rightfully his. But greater still, faithfulness in giving would also bring that spiritual restoration that the people so desperately needed. Because they would now be relying no longer on themselves, but on God who abundantly provides. They'd be finding him faithful to meet their needs. They'd ultimately be honoring him by, and fearing him, as we have seen, is their lack, is their spiritual condition. There's no fear of the Lord before their eyes. In giving, it would start that move towards fearing the Lord, honoring him. And that same promise, again, stands for us today. God promises restoration of all sorts when we repent, when we turn and obey. For in obedience, his word tells us we find true freedom, we find true delight. And a promise also applies to our giving. Because giving frees us up from the love of money. It frees us up from self-reliance. It frees us up from a lack of heavenly-mindedness, as Tim preached on a few weeks ago. Yes, it is often hard to remain faithful in our giving, especially when the money or the finances get tight or something unexpected comes our way. But God still calls us to bring it all the same, knowing that he will meet our needs and bring that restoration we so desperately need. But the last promise that we see is ultimately the glory of the Lord. We see that at the end. When he says, as you give to me and I pour out blessings and meet your needs, then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. God says simply that as the people give faithfully and God pours out his blessings to meet their needs, the nations would be a witness to it. They would see it. They would see the blessings that are being poured out. They would see the fruit and the joy of living under the hand of God himself. We see here how the, how the blessing in our giving goes far beyond the physical or the, or the material. We heard it earlier in 2 Corinthians 6.12, where it talked about giving for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, the material, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Faithful giving leads to delight. It reveals to all who see that God is good. He's good to his people. It shows the blessings of being under his care. And it invites others to come, to taste it, to see it, to experience it for themselves. It declares that God is faithful. He is unchanging. He's the father who knows our needs. And all of this declaration glorifies him. It honors him. And so for this reason, we should be eager to give. 
not with reluctance, not begrudgingly, but with joy. Because God has provided first and foremost for our greatest need in Jesus Christ. But he continues day by day to provide for all of our needs from his abundance. So may we be invited then to take God up on his challenge, put him to the test through faithful giving to the glory of his name and the growth of his kingdom. It is true that hunting for sales, using coupons and shopping clearance is a good and effective way to save money, at least in my opinion. Personally, I even find a level of satisfaction and accomplishment when I look at the bottom of my receipt and it says, you saved this much today. Makes me feel good inside. And sometimes I'm even so bad, I'll go to my apps, my shopping apps, and see, they'll tell me how much I've saved so far this year. Again, it feels good. It tells me I'm doing a good job at saving money. But as much joy as I get in those silly things, there is a greater joy that all of us should have when we freely, sacrificially, and obediently give to the Lord. For he has already given us, as Ephesians says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And as 2 Peter says, all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The windows of heaven have already been opened for us, for those who rest and trust in him. So what an insult it is to our God when we respond with stinginess or greed or even just a flat-out refusal to give to him what he is due. As Malachi says, it is robbery, it is theft, it is sin. Seek obedience to God in how you give. Seek to honor his name by honoring him with your money, and not just your money, but in this text, in this case, with your money. And put him to the test as he invites us. See if he will not provide for you, provide for us as a church, as we continue to faithfully give. Because he will provide in ways we cannot fathom, ways we cannot comprehend, ways that we aren't even thinking. Giving to the Lord is one of the many great privileges of being his people. So be faithful. Return if you've wandered. Bring what you have withheld. Give joyfully to the one who has joyfully given Christ and so much more to you. Let us pray. God, you have been so gracious to us. You have abundantly poured out your many blessings upon us, most chiefly in Christ. And we give you thanks. We praise you. And God, would you forgive us for where we have robbed you? Whether it is in our finances, whether it's our time, our talents, or our energy, where we have not given to you what you are rightfully due. Help us to seek repentance to change, not by our own strength, but by the power of your spirit at work in us. But may we also rest with confidence knowing that you are the same unchanging God who offers grace and mercy and who promises to pour out blessings upon blessings upon us as we obediently follow you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.